Welcome back to North Tales, everyone. A regular deep dive into the world of craft with some of my fellow makers. This time around, we're doing something a wee bit different. A few weeks ago, Anok teamed up with our friends at Overtone Brewing, who are one of Scotland's best craft beer makers. It made for a very interesting evening exploring how good beer and whiskey are made, how they get along when you pair them up, and also trying to find out what we all really mean when we use the word craft. If you weren't lucky enough to be there at the brewery on the night, don't worry. I'm delighted that today we have the, the event's two hosts, Karan McBall from Overtone and Anok's very own global brand ambassador, Stuart Baxter, joining us for a chat. I should point out that Stuart also acts as my slightly younger and probably slightly less handsome stunt double for events, where it involves actually meeting people in the flesh. Welcome, guys. All well, Gordon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, all, all good here, man. Thank you so much for having us. The event Overtone Bruin is part of a Knox Craftcast campaign, which is all about teaming up with makers to celebrate how craft products are made. And this was our first event. How did the night go? I could not have been happier with it. Uh, just the, the way the brewery looked was utterly phenomenal. I don't think it's ever looked more inviting for people to actually walk in. That was the first thing that kind of stood out to me. But even beyond that, it was organised flawlessly uh the people were all really really interactive which was exactly what uh Stuart and i would have wanted um and yeah it was n- nerve-wracking to begin with but uh once, once everyone settled down i think it was fantastic i couldn't have asked for anything more from it we had people that are you know craft producers and, and you know make things by hand and uh, we had some competition winners that joined us as well so it was a great mix of beer lovers whiskey lovers and then just people that were there to experience craft cast for what it was which was brilliant we did it in the brewery we also had the sherry casks from Nokdu uh sitting in the main section so it was a great talking point and the way that it was dressed up it was this you know we were able to stand next to it and talk through these these sherry butts that would have aged 18 year old and 24 year old uh, which was you know it was a nice nice integration of, of both worlds i think sounds pretty cool the word craft i mean it's it's, it's used so much these days and that's what it's actually used and abused, I think. So did the Craftcast event produce any better answers to what the craft actually means? Um, I think it did because we we got an opportunity to, to kind of break the term down, which, as you said, just it, it, it seems to be overused and abused at the moment. But I think what we broke it down to uh, was the fact that if you were to ask a thousand people what craft meant to them, you'd probably get a thousand different answers and I don't think any of them are necessarily wrong. It's mm-hmm. it's what you perceive something to be that makes it either craft or not. Um, and I think that comes down to scale, to, to the scale at which things are made. It comes down to, in our cases, ingredients, techniques, and procedures as to how we do things. It can come down to whether enough care is being given into it or not, but it's it's not just down to to skill in my eyes. I think there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more depth to, to answering that question depending on the context. Yeah, yeah, I think that human element is always required to be there in the production process. For me, you know mm-hmm. that that's you know that's exactly what you know what Kran is saying is you know a thousand different reasons and what people perceive it to be, 
Um, but when we come down to it as well, I think human element needs to be there. Without that, you, you don't think you can label something as artisan or craft or, or bespoke. You know, we can design machines to produce something to absolute perfection. But I think there's, there's joy in, in something being a little bit more rustic and a little bit more hands-on. We've heard people speak in the past about automated sites that produce craft products. And the craft comes in the skill of the programmer that's going to run the machine that's used to make these products, which I don't, I don't think I quite agree with. I'm, <laughs> I was going to say, I know how you feel about that. But. <laughs> Tell us a wee bit of the brewery, Karan. Well, uh, let's see. Well, where do I start? Uh, well, we started off four years ago. Uh, it was Bowie and our head brewer, Dan, uh, who came together trying to create predominantly New England IPAs and hoppy styles of beer at the time because they they believed there was a market for it. And they were absolutely right. Uh, and after which, uh, Charlie and James joined the company uh, a couple of years ago. And we've just grown from strength to strength from there. Uh producing, well, again, predominantly the hoppy IPAs and New England-style beers, but we've also grown and expanded into German lagers. We've done lots and lots of experiments with sour beers, which have turned out to be very, very popular. So, yeah, we've we've, we've tried to be as innovative as we can. Uh, We're what we describe as a fluid brewery, so we don't have a core range, which allows us to experiment quite a bit. Uh, we produced over 100 unique products last year, um, and it's looking wow. at that number. It's going to get beaten yeah. this year. Uh, so, yeah, we, we bring back some of our more popular beers, but uh, more often than not, it's a new recipe. It's a new hop combination. It's a new blend of something else. It's new techniques being used all the time. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's us in a nutshell. Hey, what I, I really love about Overtone, and have loved even before we, we kind of met Karan and, and, you know, having beers together and whatnot, but... I love the transparency and what you guys talk about, but also this, you will always do a sour, you'll always do a stout, you'll always do an IPA and a pale ale, but you play around with it. But there's a, mm-hmm. you know, there's that consistency and yet complete variance. And as you said, a hundred beers under, or hundred products underneath those categories is it's, it's amazing. Just all that ingenuity <laughs> and innovation regarding ingredients. It's amazing. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. How did you get into brewing, Carl? Oh, p- personally, for me, it was uh, a bit of a roller coaster. Actually, having grown up in India, it was uh, not something I would have considered as a career uh, to begin with. I was studying hospitality, uh, and then we had this random symposium where a couple of brewers came and spoke to us. And I just remember listening to this uh, this guy Logan, who used to work at Ann Arbor, who was working in Bangalore at the time, gave us this this talk, and he just goes like, "Yeah, you know, I wake up every morning." choose what I want to throw into a beer and I can do this and I can do that just the the way that he described it I think it it, it had me you know gears turning in my head thinking oh well, what, what if I could try something like this um, and then traveled over the next couple of years to Europe a couple of times and uh, first experience of Guinness I think completely blew my mind not having ever tried anything even remotely close to it. Uh, and I had that first sip and I went, okay, I really need to know how to make this. I really want to know how this is this is achieved. So, 
Yeah, from from there on in, uh, my wife decided that she wanted to come to Edinburgh to study her master's. She said, oh, are you coming with me? I, said, I don't know what, the, what I'm going to do here. So she found me the uh, brewing and distilling course in Harriet Watt and said, oh, you've, you know, you've been thinking about this. You've been flirting with the idea for so long. Just, you know, dive in and do it. Uh, and yeah, I took, took the punt and never looked back. That was six years ago. Excellent. So your your wife's driven you to drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she's driven me to do everything good that I've done so far. So yeah, um, she's she, she's always helped me keep my head on my shoulders and actually decide what I want to do and keep keep actually moving forward and not get stagnant. I think that's the most important thing. You enjoy a drama as well. Oh, uh, absolutely. I don't think I would have. I don't think you could be in Scotland and say no to that, I think. It just, it just depends on what you enjoy. There's just so much to choose from. Um, I've been enamored by, by the amount of whiskies that the country has to offer and, and how distinct all of them can be from one another. Kuran, the one thing as well is this, the concept of craft beer is obviously fairly new. In, well, in, in realistic terms, right? I mean, you talk about, what, six, seven years ago, you'd barely see a craft can in a fridge, let alone have, you've got mm-hmm. guest taps, or not even permanent taps, in and around Glasgow, mm-hmm. which just wasn't a thing, like, five, six years ago. But what I love is this, the contrast that you have, this really modern, in-your-face branding. I'm just looking at Boogie Nights just now, where it's just multiple colours, <laughs> like, bright purple can. But then, on the back is... You like in bold, natural, unfiltered, unfined, vegan-friendly beer. You list every single ingredient in here, even the hops, which you know not many people would have thought about the hops that go into their beer. So you leak the hop species, how it's made, obviously ABV, but you know there's there's this kind of coming together of transparency and what beer is and how it's made and this unfiltered concept, and then modern, bright, in your face, very. 21st century, if you don't mind me saying, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think works. It works really well. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have to embrace that, obviously. As you said, craft beer is fairly modern. So you, you'd be remiss not to take advantage of the fact that you can be very colorful, very bright, very uh, audacious almost in the way that you market things and, and you can get away with pretty much anything. Yes, the transparency is important. And again, we, we've learned that. Because that that wasn't something we did immediately. It's that that back back end of the the can design has been reworked, reverbed, and revamped so many times now to make it look the way that it is. And we're still probably going to make more changes to it coming forward. Uh, Kelly, of course, is an absolute genius when it comes to designing these labels. As you can see, it's just so eye catching and still still iconic. Like you know, you know an overtone can while standing halfway across the room, and I think that's really important. Uh, but yeah, this, this this transparency thing I think is, is is something that's quite underrated because I think there's this unfounded need to keep everything fairly secretive. It's like, no, someone's going to take my idea, someone's going to do what I do and do it better. It's just you, you should have confidence in what you're producing and say, this is how we do it. Come and try it and see. If you want to try doing it yourself, go ahead and do it. So that's okay. But uh, at the end of the day, we have confidence in what we do. And the fact is, you know, how, how often are we going to even bring that product back? <laughs> that, that becomes another thing that we consider ourselves is uh, just because we're, we're constantly looking to 
even if we're making the same beer again, we're looking to make it better. We're, we're looking mm-hmm. to maybe rebrand it. We're looking to change the hop, hops in it, or maybe we're looking to change the techniques that we add uh, where, where, of how we add the fruits or how we add the hops to it. So, you know, not, nothing actually stays stationary long enough for anyone to steal a recipe from us. I mean, our biggest raw mm-hmm. material, malted barley, comes from a living thing. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the variety, where it's been grown, what time of year the, the maltsters are, are processing it. Warm summer weather, maltsters struggle, struggle to control their steep temperatures, which affects the quality of the malt. So we've, we've got a, a, a basic pattern we work to. Uh, but if you change, change your mill roll settings by two thousandths of an inch, it changes your grist composition, change your mashing temperatures half a degree either way. Uh, the rakes in the mash tun, uh, if you use them too much, you'll, you'll disturb, you'll open up the grain bed too much, which will affect your works quality. Uh, you can play tunes with your washback setting temperatures, the amount of yeast you pitch. And okay. it's, it's, it's just a combination of all these things. You just want to kind of tweak and twist and tweak, tease a, a wee bit just to get the best out of the plant and out of the raw materials. Is that predominantly instinct when you make that decision, or, or is there a lot of research that goes into even those tiny changes? Yeah, it's it's very much a not do it. We rely on people to, to use their eyes and use their heads, uh, and it's even simple things. Does it smell right? Does it look right? Does it sound right? Uh, and I totally agree what you guys are saying about the the, the openness and the. The detail on the on the back of the tins. I must admit, I kind of gave up reading the back of, or twisting notes on the labels on the back of whiskey bottles years ago because it just annoyed me. Um, <laughs> and they, they, they used to be nice and simple, but these days you sometimes think the script writers getting paid by the word. Uh, <laughs> so. It's funny, you know. You might you might think I, I disagree with you, but I I've always kind of ignored them for the reason that it's subjective. You know, people are going to pull out different flavour profiles. So if I dictate tasting notes to people, they're useful in the sense that it gives people an understanding of what the liquid's going to taste like if they've never had it before. But when I do tastings, I always encourage people to give me their tasting notes because you develop a much stronger relationship to that liquid than than if I stand there and go, digestive biscuits, oranges, cashews. Because the power of suggestion is a really important thing. So what I'm saying is I do my tastings very lazily and get people, other people to do the work. <laughs> I once watched two guys have a, a rather verbal disagreement at a tasting about, uh, I can't remember what whiskey we were tasting, but they said, no, it's tinned pineapples. And the guy was arguing, he's like, no, it's boiled sweet pineapple. And it got, got more heated than it should have over a, a simple, you know, agree to disagree, both pineapple, but one was adamant it was tinned. tinned. Oh Bizarre. my God. But people get really impassioned about, <laughs> about whiskey, beer and, and everything, right? Oh, I wish I was there to see that. I don't. I don't nearly. Oh, it was weird. Entertaining a story. Part of the reason I fell in love with distilling and whiskey and, and and beer and wine, for that matter, is these small logical steps that it takes to make a big, big change at the very end. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. But it's a lot of problem solving um, in brewing and distilling. And I guess what I was going to say is, Karan, do you find that with? Because effectively, what we, when we distill, it's creating a wash that we, where I, I see very much where we create whiskey and distilling is concentrating effectively that flavour. And Gordon, please smack me if you uh, see it. No, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, but when you guys create, obviously, when you guys are creating effectively what we would maybe call a wash, you're, that's for 
that's for consumption. So do you find that small changes early on in the process affect it quite largely towards the end? Oh, 100%. It, it can make a massive difference because, you know, mash temperatures of 64 to 66 Celsius, just that two degrees can completely change the mouthfeel at the end of the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're dry hopping at day one, day two, day three, depending on the temperature we're dry hopping at, that completely changes the aroma. What, what flavor profiles and what hop oils it extracts completely changes. Uh, even when we, the temperature we ferment at, uh, the yep. best example being, say, a Hefeweizen, where if you ferment at 19 degrees, you get an excessive amount of clove on the nose. You ferment it at 21, that turns into banana. That's two degrees. Yeah. But it just completely flips. It was interesting, Gordon, because Karan and I were, were put together to come up with the pairings for this, but obviously Karan had the much more difficult job where such a varied number of beers to pair with um, what we have in terms of a consistent core range of whiskey. But I think he did the, a bloody great job. And what I loved is even before I opened my mouth about how I would go about food pairings or beer pairings, Karan was talking about you know, the three ways you can look at a, a juxtaposition, you know, something that's slightly different but complements or fills a hole or a gap in one or the other, uh, a consistency factor, and then a wild card, you know, something that's not going to please everybody, but is just something a bit strange, a bit weird and a bit funky that uh, we thought worked really, really well. Um, but I think Karan did a really good job in, in pairing the whiskey <laughs> and the beer. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate that. Not it's at all, please not indeed. At <laughs> Um, so, I mean, obviously, I think we start with Anok 12. And what was the pairing? I believe it was, was it Pink Cashmere. Yes, it's Pink Cashmere with, with the 12-year-old. So what, what we have here is Huel, Melon, Citra, and Cashmere hops. So what they give us is a very, very smooth mouthfeel. That's from the malt base that we use. There's uh, a fair bit of oats in the, in the beer as well, which just gives you a little bit of a softer feel to the actual beer. Uh, and in terms of the hops, there are lemons, lime, and potentially like a little bit of pineapple in there. I'm not going to say whether it's canned or boiled, though. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, what, what you should get is just a, a whole lot of hoppiness, a really nice smooth mouthfeel, uh, and a very, very clean finish, which was the important thing for me while considering the pairing with the 12-year-old, because I think the 12-year-old's in the, the way that I like describing it is it's almost a session whiskey because it's just that easy to drink. It's, it's, a, it's got a lovely, lovely finish to it that just kind of dissipates in your mouth, asking you to go, go in for another sip. So I thought the beer should complement that as well. That is insanely fruity. <laughs> it is. Wait, wait for the next one, though. This one doesn't have any fruit in it. <laughs> that, um, I remember a tasting someone said, it's like, What's your favorite whiskey? And the guy said, the next one. <laughs> like, That's a good one. Well, on that note, slunge. Really well. Slunge. Cheers. Slunge. So, I mean, obviously, it's a, you guys do a very natural product, but they all come out. Is it just effectively what we would call cast strength without the cask and, and that hydrometer would measure it? Or do you... Do you have to control it up or down in any way to, to hit kind of specific points, like 5%, 45 
No, I think as long as we use the right amount of malt, that doesn't really change because there, there is a predictability with the amount of work the yeast can do when it comes to beer yeasts in particular. Uh, yeah. And there's also only that much sugar that you can extract. So it's never going to overshoot by too much. Sometimes with the fruit, it might, but again, it's, it's negligible uh, amounts because mm-hmm. the base recipe is almost the same most times. When we are innovating, we're still ensuring that our gravities are are pretty much on the nose. I can see where you've picked <laughs> these, uh, the, the citrus, the fruit. They just sit so well together. Summertime beer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, this was one of the first kind of new new pale ales that we made this year. Uh, so we produced it in in January when we were trying to start to make more session products because we had gone basically the entirety of last quarter of last year, making a whole lot of double IPAs and triple IPAs because that's what the market was demanding for at the time. But then as you hit January, then there's, you know, there's dry January, people trying to be more careful about what they're doing. And then we were finally getting away from COVID as well. So we said, okay, now we need to start making session products and start making them the way that we make our doubles. Uh, so yeah, Pink, Pink Cash is the first kind of step that we made doing that. And we were so happy with the product that we made it again. So this is the second time we've made made this beer, and we're really happy with it. So that's probably one that's going to come back. So the next pairing. Well, that was a good sound. That was a tall glass someone just poured. <laughs> I'm using the, the schooner glasses just because I like knocking a little bit of the head off. Wow. It is quite different to, to pink cashmere. Oh, yeah. It's a chalk and cheese. Yeah, this one's a lot stronger, and I mean that in every sense of the word because it's higher in ABV. There is a whole lot of fruit thrown into it, and the yeast that we use, or well, the bacteria we use before we actually actually ferment it, sours the beer down to quite a tart extent. And we've added a lot of lime juice to it as well. So th- this beer is a play on uh, Ponsta Martini. So it's passion fruit, lime, and a whole lot of like actual vanilla uh, that we blended into some vodka and then added into the into the beer. So what you'll get from this is very very refreshing, very very tart, but a little bit of sweetness or rather perceived sweetness of the vanilla that's in there. Yeah, and you'll also notice that the head dissipates quite quickly, and that's because of how sour it is as well. I think we, when we paired these together, this was—I think both of us were laughing because we like, we really liked the pairing, and we saw mm-hmm. this as a as the wild card, which I think is a risk to take with the twenty-four-year-old, but it worked really well um, because this is a, a bit of a wild card pairing because there is a, a contrast to two of them in terms of a. a you know, root flavor. You know, twenty-four-year-old is fifteen years in ex bourbon, and then nine years in Spanish oak, uh, ex oloroso. So, you know, we were like, "Oh no, let's let's see how everyone goes." But I think the, the setup and layout of the event worked really well. Is this informal sharing of ideas and sharing of just the love and concept of rustic informality and craft? And I think we had about an eighty percent success rate, um, but we knew it wasn't going to mm-hmm. be a hundred. Um, I think when we asked everyone like, what do you think is. would have paired better with other ones, but people were really, really enjoyed it. But there definitely is, you know, I think we both admitted this isn't 
a perfect pairing, but it's something that we enjoyed. I think we thought it worked really well, uh, just out of an interest point of view more than anything. There was the the temptation to use this combination because there is one bit of it that I think complements very, very well, and that's that predominant vanilla note. And I think that they can they kind of tie each other up a little bit before that contrast starts to peak its head. That was if my that initial impression. Yep, exactly. Vanilla, vanilla. Uh, that's the first yeah. thing that hit me in both. Yep. And then I got a bit oh. weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's adding something to the others that neither of them have. There's that tie-in. And then there's this this warmth, these dried fruits, that vanilla cream and even coconut coming through. I mean, 24 years in cask. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think we take for granted quite a lot of the time, you know, 12 years, 15 years, 16, 18. But 24 years, I mean, 24 years ago, <laughs> what, what was around? The iPhone didn't exist. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good uh, Gordon could bring back those days, he would. I was still in primary school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 24 years ago. Jeez, I celebrated 10 years in the working in a distillery. You, you guys are making beer to be consumed. I don't know what the shelf life of a, a craft beer is. Uh, we're very much aware that we, what we are making today is is it's going to be laid down. It's, it's, it's unlikely that my generation is going to be drinking the whiskies we make today. Mm-hmm. But does it excite you that that's part of your legacy, that people are going to be drinking something that you made oh, yeah, and today, 24 years from down the line? Yep. Uh, and you, you always kind of have a think about the guys in the past when you're enjoying a glass of something a wee bit older as well. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? There's a huge amount of, you know, poetry, romance, whatever you want to call it to it. But, you know, I think we ignore and overlook that quite, quite readily when we just see a 12-year-old single malt on a shelf in a bar. And you think that's mm-hmm. a accessible, affordable whiskey when you think 12 years of, of course, sitting in a cask, but, you know, that was 12 years ago that that came off the stills and was put into cask. And, you know, just thinking about that for a moment really kind of gets you, gives you an understanding of why single malt scotch is, is so popular globally. You know, there is a lot, a lot more to it than just liquid in a glass. So going out of the two, what was uh, the preference of pairing? Uh, I think I would go for the pink cashmere and 12 year old. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> no, I tend to agree from a pairing point of view. I think the, the 24 and, uh, and Boogie Nights works. It was obviously a wild card, but from a, a perfect pairing and looking at flavours, the 12 and pink cashmere was, was absolutely bang on. But, I mean, Quran, me and you knew, knew that going into... Mm-hmm. The craft cast event. We we knew what we were doing, uh, but yeah, I mean, twenty four liquid is just stunning. Oh yeah, it's 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 quickly becoming one of my favorite drums. To be fair. Well, thanks, Karen Stewart, for joining us today and reporting back in the Knox first craft cast event. And for anyone who wants to learn more, there's a great video of the two of you in action on our website. So take a look. Thanks again, guys. It's lunch. Thank you so much for having us. Cheers, guys. Cheers.
Oh, it's been good fun. I've enjoyed the talk today, guys. It's like, uh, yeah. And Karan, yeah, we'll definitely see you up here sometime. Fingers crossed, soon, sooner rather than later. <laughs>